you shouldn't be building something for investment. The startups should not try to open source AI, and instead, they should try and patent it. Two worlds, one topic, early stage deep tech startups. I'm Alex Petros, and this is Applied AI Pod. Welcome to an episode where we get to sit down with Alexander Piskunov, a partner of the San Francisco-based VC fund Ruvento Ventures, a deep tech venture capital fund specializing on AI, robotics, and quantum computing investments in emerging markets. And on the other side of the table, we sit down with a passionate early stage deep tech startup founder, Amandine Flogs, CEO and co-founder of Wild Meta, AI for video games. She's also a supporter of early stage startup founders for the past 10 years and a VC scout for UK-based backed VC. Two worlds, one episode. Without further ado, hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by BAI, the AI pre-accelerator for early stage deep tech startups. The AI pre-accelerator will open its call for deep tech teams and startups this summer and starting its program for Europe and Asia this autumn, October, December. Why did you decide to continue bootstrapping and um, decided to not opt for an investment uh, for your own startup, being a deep tech startup? Yes. So, well, funny thing is, initially, that wasn't the plan. Um, initially, we were looking to fundraise and we were, we were looking at the traditional road, I'd say. Um, so when, when, we, when we started Wild Meta, we initially um, had the plan to first build a prototype and then raise money to build a B2C platform. Um, and so... We, we started working on the on the core technology. We wanted to first validate all our assumptions on the technical level um, while also validating the commercial aspects. But then when we started talking to investors, um, it was at a point where we were more confi- confident about the technology and uh, the fact that we could actually make it because we, we already had a prototype. Um, and so we started talking to investors, but also to video game studios because we wanted to be more involved in, this, in, in the gaming ecosystem. And we had some assumptions. So we were focusing on the B2C platform because our initial assumption was that, yes, to expand, we would need to have agreements with game studios and work directly with B2B. But we thought that we couldn't really start this discussion until we had the platform up and running, until we had a certain amount of users uh, using our technology on a large scale and in production and live. And so we tried to raise money on that plan. Um, and to be honest, B2C and deep tech, it's, it's not the best combo. Um, usually VCs, we, we spoke to quickly put us in the consumer box. And so we were identifying ourselves with deep tech and not consumer necessarily, right? And so they had the expectation they would have for B2C platform, for any kind of B2C platform, like platforms who are just powered by web technologies. Um, And so many VCs asked us to um, have already users or or, uh, have a large mailing list um, and that wasn't the case and so um, of course we were were a bit disappointed first um, but also 
no one was really getting how advanced our technology was really. Um, and uh, uh, during this talk, as I said, we, we also had very interesting discussions with angels and people from the gaming industry. And so we realized, talking to all these people, that actually maybe our initial assumptions was, was wrong. Maybe we didn't need to have this B2C platform to start talking to video game studios. And so um, we, we thought about it for quite some time. And when we really decided to start talking further with video game studios and test this new assumption that maybe we could actually offer our technology as a service instead or in any form, but directly to video game studios, then um, it, it already has been had been a year since we were working on Wild Meta. And so we have bootstrapped so far for an entire year. And when we decided to shift a bit our, our focus from a B2C platform to building a B2B um, service company, we realized that, well, yes, we could start raising money on, on this new um, story and, and this new plan. But then what what will VCs want what what do they want really when when you when you go to them they are they want to to see traction and that was something that we didn't have yet and so that's something that we could have so we decided to just stop fundraising stop actively fundraising we kept in touch with uh, some of the investors and angels we really had con good conversations with and we decided to just make the shift and continue working on Wild Meta, but bootstrapping, um, at least for the time that we can, at least for as long as we can. Um, and for sure, as soon as we start having more clients, we will need to grow, we will need to get more cash um, and to raise money. But by that, by that time, we will also be able to go to VCs and not just talk about the technology, but also talk about how the uh, entire business model is validated because we already have clients, how we need money because um, we need to grow the team quickly because we have contracts. And so that's a very di different position and dynamic when you are in this position and talk to investors so that's that's the objective and that's why we decided to continue bootstrapping a bit uh, a bit longer thank you so much amandine it's a story that many will resonate with now let's find out what alexander says about how much capital is a vc ready to invest i think it depends on the stage and i mean uh at the moment the later rounds are getting increasingly competitive uh from the investors viewpoint so uh, because, you know, they're less risky, a lot more capital wants to get in, a lot more capital which cannot really do effective due diligence, maybe from the family officer side or uh, from the side of uh, private investors. They have enough money, but they don't have enough expertise and they don't have enough ability to actually help out the startup. And that's why they are mainly going in at the later stages when uh, it's about scaling up the existing product and maintaining its effectiveness on the markets while, uh, instead of, you know, uh, adding new features or actually expanding it as rapidly as before. So at later stages, uh, competition is fierce. So at the moment, a lot of investors who want to get in are being forced to do so at the earlier stages because 
if they have proven themselves worthy of um, attention and um, space in the cup table uh, from a very good entrepreneur, then uh, it's increasingly likely that they will be able to lead and participate in the later rounds. And as internal uh, investors, so being inside the cap table, it means that they are actually able uh, to understand better of how the startup is doing because they have access to internal information. Um, at earlier stages, over the past few years, I'd say that deep tech uh, investments have really uh, blown up in value. And... COVID uh, hasn't really affected the valuations as much as it has, you know, lengthened the uh, time necessary for uh, investors to do their due diligence and for startups to actually complete a round. Mm. If someone were to say open source AI is a good business approach, a good business path uh, for a startup, uh, what would you say to them from your perspective? Uh, well, I'd say that they're really idealistic about it because, you know, for startup, <laughs> uh, you are already in a very competitive market. And if you were to put your unique algorithm, which you could have patented onto the open market, then it would mean that not only the big corporations can have access to it, but also your smaller competitors. And as a result, it's um, not as much about your technical proficiency uh, as it is about your ability to scale it up, uh, to uh, milk the existing clients and investors that you do have. And especially at early stages, it's extremely difficult, right? So I think that traditionally it makes sense only for the large corporations to release their AI as open source because it will help them to encourage inflow of new solutions uh, to bring new bring new innovations into the market, which could otherwise have gone stale, right? So I think that's what uh, Elon Musk did uh, a couple of years ago, and this really didn't affect, you know, the valuation of his company. So instead, I think that the startups should not try and do open source AI, and instead they should try and patent it and in cases where it's too expensive or lengthy for them to do so, they should stay in stealth mode uh, and try and not give too much information away because otherwise it would attract too much attention. And once they have secured enough investment to uh, generate the first few umbrella patents, once they have secure the first few institutional clients is in the B2B space, then uh, they can be a little bit less cautious about which information they give away. And then they can, uh, you know, move away from just uh, building their product to actually scaling it up and then um, enter the open market uh, much more freely. Yeah, good advice. Uh, there's Definitely interest in this space, and there are many startups making the step towards open sourcing. So this is why it's important to to have the full perspective, not only the idealistic startup chasing um, open source AI. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting, but uh, we we have to to look at it from also from a commercial perspective. Let's check out what Amandine has to say about open source AI. 
So I have to be very careful here because one of my friends is a huge advocate of open source. <laughs> so I have to be careful here. Um, I don't think that's necessarily good or bad. You know, it's it's one of these choices that just needs to make sense. And so in if a founder um, comes to me and tells me, okay, I'm building an open source AI startup uh, and here is my plan to monetize or here is why it's going to be viable. Well, it's it's all about what makes uh, this startup viable. Thing is, when we, when we use the word startup, everyone think about very high growth, um, fundraising, uh, you know, high valuation um, and everything else. Well, I, I think founders who are building sustainable businesses, um, and I mean profitable businesses who don't necessarily rely heavily on, on external money, um, I think it's, it's, they should be more praised um, and we should stop just looking only at startups or raising huge amount of money. But then when it comes to open source or not, um, I think it, it can be great for, for the ecosystem. It can help lots of people, inspire other people, maybe get some um, young people in, into the space. So there are lots of benefits of, uh, of building open source. You could also build a startup that is a, a B Corp. Um, something that comes a lot recently is building a startup in the open. And B Corp, they the idea is to uh, be open about your numbers, how much you're making, how much you're spending. That could also be a solution. And I don't think that there is necessarily um, one answer that says open source is good or bad for a startup. I, I really think it depends on your model and how you're going to make your company profitable and grow and be able to pay your employees. How you how are you going to make that happen? I loved how you, you framed the perspective Definitely, it's an exploring journey, and I think you, you you put it well. What about the ideal shareholder split? There is a trend in deep tech of seeing uh, university spin-outs, um, hence university or academics being on the shareholding table. Um, so what would be an ideal shareholder split from your perspective? It definitely depends on the stage, because the more the startup grows, the more likely it is that uh, further financing rounds and thus the majority of equity given away um, in a specific round of investment would be taken by uh, strategic investors who are normally large corporations who tend to take up, um, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40% of equity uh, or a little bit less. But at earlier stages, so pre-seed or seed, and this is where I think uh, your point of, you know, academics or universities or accelerators, which are associated with with universities, play the most um, impact. Normally, I would say that it would be quite... um, a big problem for you down the road as an entrepreneur if uh, at this stage you would give away more than 20% of equity to such sources. And normally, if it's an individual, like a very renowned university professor um, in your specific field of business who is really helping you out with introductions, with patents, with 
encouraging innovation or helping you to commercialize it, then uh, as an individual or a, an angel investor, he should get maybe not more than four or five percent, because otherwise it will be difficult for you to justify to later stage investors. Because you know, at later stages, uh, this particular university professor might have a great brand name, but he's not going to be uh, helpful to you as much. And normally, um, even the best accelerators, they don't take more than um, 7 to 10% of equity. And they realize that, you know, if they take up more, then uh, eventually it would come back to uh, shoot them in their own leg down the road. Because for you as an entrepreneur, it's not going to be as interesting uh, if you gave away too much equity at a very early round. And because accelerators and early stage investors um, base their success uh, in terms of, you know, getting back the money uh, that they have put in uh, through the participation of later stage investors, then uh, they are normally content, you know, with not taking up too much equity as long as you are very forthcoming when it comes to, you know, uh, telling them about any kind of troubles you have with the product or what exactly you feel that they can be helpful in or what have you have your uh, financial results and other metrics have been to date. So ideally, you know, early stage investors, they just want to be updated. They want to have an opportunity to participate at an later round. But normally, if it's an individual or a very early stage accelerator, they don't have the financial capacity to do so. So don't give away too much equity. Otherwise, it could be problematic both for you and for your uh, early stage investors. I believe the specificity of early stage makes it so if you see a potential of fail early on, maybe you can um, take the appropriate measures to to avoid the fail uh, situation. Uh, for sure. I agree with you. But I mean, really, the um, attitude that your investors at an early stage have towards your failure um, in terms of, you know, uh, pivoting or doing a completely different business model or adding some new features which require quite significant additional uh, capital put in depends uh, quite significantly on the market as well. For example, uh, in Silicon Valley, just as well as in the rest of America, maybe to a lower extent in uh, countries like UK or Germany, they have a much more uh, forgiving attitude towards failure, right? So they view failure as an opportunity for the entrepreneur to make some mistakes, to uh, adapt into a business model, which ultimately would be far more in demand. And I'd say that this attitude comes from the fact that, you know, um, especially in places like Silicon Valley, uh, investments have been going on for so long that, um, you know, people have a different attitude of helping their investments to scale. And they understand that, you know, failure is not failure down the road as long as you can uh, successfully mitigate it uh, quite quickly. While in countries like, for example, Eastern Europe, if you failed once, um, your current investors are very unlikely to back you the second time. And they're quite likely to uh, tell other investors uh, 
that you know perhaps you as an entrepreneur are not worthy of subsequent investor investment even if it's your um, second startup right uh, because in those places the investment communities are so small and niche that everyone knows each other and rumors travel whether you want it or not obviously it works both ways so if you are a serial entrepreneur uh, it's even more likely that you would secure your financing round than in a bigger market like Silicon Valley, where there is so much more competition. Definitely interesting. Yeah, and uh, coming from Eastern Europe um, and seeing what happens in Western Europe, um, that's a fact. Uh, it's happening. I always wondered, if you are in Silicon Valley, should you come to maybe Europe to raise funds faster? An interesting trend in Silicon Valley recently was the fact that, you know, people are moving out and this has been going on for the past few years, but coronavirus has really accelerated it. And normally they're not moving out to other countries like uh, Western Europe or Latin America as much as they're moving out to other states um, within America, like, for example, a lot are going to Texas, some are going to Colorado. And this is because um, it's so much cheaper to live over there, while um, the whole infrastructure level within the United States uh, is quite similar, if, if you uh, don't consider Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley is just on another level. So basically, uh, because of an outflow of both investors and startups uh, from Silicon Valley, you're not going to be placed as much at a disadvantage than before. And um, if you were to go to, for example, London or to Berlin for fundraising, you should aim to do so not very early on, but later, maybe at your uh, Series B or Series C, when you're thinking more about your international expansion. Because a, a lot of um, corporations uh, for your... Uh, B2B pipeline or a lot of international investors are still present in the States. But if you were considering a commercial expansion to Europe, then it would be wise to um, move away to those local markets. And yes, um, some big corporations like, for example, uh, BMW have uh, offices in the States as well. They're still stronger on their home turf. So uh, it, it pays to be close uh, to your consumer and to your potential investors. Problem with uh, Europe in comparison to the States is that it's a smaller market and it has slightly different trends in terms of investment and in terms of startup development. So unless you know that in advance, um, it's quite risky uh, to move away You've on. mentioned, uh, you know, this impact of migration, COVID and changes of mm -hmm. states. Uh, what could be some other impacts of the pandemic on the deep tech investment? Another impact of the pandemic has really been the fact that uh, it's taking longer for entrepreneurs to raise their financing rounds. And for one reason, it is because uh, VCs, are facing a lot of pressure from their investors. And as a result, they're taking greater care when it comes to doing their due diligence before actually wiring in the money. Uh, and this greater care 
uh, is normally because you know it would take longer for the VC to actually understand that of how accurately does the startups team follow their R&D milestones, how accurate is the information about technological progress to date and their roadmap for the future is being laid out, how appropriate is the existing level of sophistication uh, to the amount of money that they're actually willing and wishing to raise. Um, but it's not all bad because, I mean, because of the difficulties in travel, uh, which by now are sort of starting to relax, a lot of VCs, especially at earlier stages, are willing to forego face-to-face meetings and instead go and do Zoom meetings with a team because uh, it's still good to have a face-to-face, but uh, in order to get into the most competitive rounds for a deep tech startup, some VCs are willing to compromise. Still, uh, you know, when it comes to doing technical due diligence, um, I think that it will be a very bad idea to compromise when it comes to not uh, talking to clients of the startup, especially uh, new clients or those clients which have previously used the startup's product, but now are using that as a competitor. And um, it's also a bad idea to compromise the things like, you know, talking to investors of the previous round, uh, because normally investors of the previous round have access to internal information, which is not leaked out uh, to the wider market, especially not shown in documentation like the startup's deck or its deal room. Uh, So if investors of the previous round, for some reason, have chosen not to participate in the current one, then perhaps it's a red flag because maybe they know something negative about the startup's products or progress, uh, which you as a potential investor do not. So the technical due diligence has to really be comprehensive and it has to um, not be alone, but it also has to be, um, you know, in uh, concert with other aspects like, for example, market due diligence, as well as a greater understanding of the team. One thing I'm thinking now, you know, because we had a recent example with um, hedge funds and the Reddit conversation on a specific stock. Do you ever check Reddit channels for, I don't know, trying to backtrack mm-hmm. news or specific inf- information for information that would influence you? somehow or have you ever considered such alternative sources when it comes to doing for example technical due diligence i'd say that reddit is definitely not a good source for that because reddit may be an interesting source for general knowledge but because of the abundance of information there is too much noise right so as a vc um when it comes to doing the diligence, I'd rather rely on my network, whether it comes from other funds in a similar field, whether it comes from technical experts, whether it comes from um, the expertise of our own internal team members. While um, if you look at things like, for example, um, trying to build up uh, the startup pipeline, um, then I would normally uh, either rely on my network as well, because, for example, um, if 
a startup uh, comes to a friend of mine who works at a different fund with a slightly different investment focus. Um, and this friend passes the startup over to me because it's more relevant for me. Uh, and for some reason or another, this startup is uh, not good at all. Then I would not rely on this friend of mine um, at a different fund as much in the future. So it's sort of, you know, a scratch my back kind of situation. So normally the deals that get passed on are normally quite good. Uh, and for the sources of pipeline generations that don't come from the network, uh, it's normally about, you know, things like uh, Crunchbase or PitchBook or AngelList, which are quite good because they have um, quite a wide net of startups to draw from, as well as offering some kind of industry analytics, M&A trends, uh, and similar things which can be used to augment uh, my existing understanding of the market and its future potential growth. Do VCs run their own due diligence for deep tech startups? Do they consider external opinions in the due diligence process? Or how is it when you consider diligence for a deep tech startup? I'd say that, uh, you know, it would be wrong not to do due diligence for a deep tech startup or any other kind of startup, especially if you consider early stages, because in early stages, investments are so much more risky than afterwards. Uh, and really, the focus of due diligence in deep tech uh, depends primarily on the stage, right? Because if it's like seed stage or pre-series A, it's mainly about potential. After the Afterwards, it's about scalability, then uh, the ability of the startup to sort of maintain its technology. And uh, in terms of what actually goes into the due diligence process for deep tech, well, uh, we have our internal investment team which mainly looks at uh, the aspects uh, like the team, so it's technological prowess, it's expertise, it's citation indexes, or maybe some scientific research papers they have published to understand better of how competent they actually are on the subject. And we also employ external experts who are professors at top universities, who are uh, CEOs of uh, large corporations or startups that have really raced well in our network to give us a better understanding of, um, you know, how demanded would the startup's product be in the current market situation, how scalable it is afterwards, and what is the actual potential um, of the claim that the entrepreneur has made to become a reality. Because uh, especially in areas like Silicon Valley, like uh, London or Singapore, uh, because there is a lot of money involved, entrepreneurs try and make bold claims to become more appealing to investors. But as time goes on, um, it becomes clear that not everything is as rosy as it seems. <laughs> so we're definitely past the times where you add the AI keywords to your product description and that uh, immediately uh, books you a, a seat towards uh, a talk with a, new, a VC investor, for example. This uh, case used to be primarily maybe three or four years ago back in the Valley. 
Right now, uh, it is still the case in countries uh, in Eastern Europe, like, for example, Russia in Ukraine, where people add the AI keyword and expect that the evaluation would be uh, up maybe two times or a little bit more. Uh, right now, in developed countries, it's all about uh, clean tech, about areas uh, in renewable energy, as well as health technology, you know, especially because of COVID. And um, in other markets, like, for example, in Latin America or India, uh, there is AI, but entrepreneurs claim that they use this AI, while in fact, it's a large amount of people who replace their artificial intelligence algorithm because it's cheaper and it's more convenient. So you really have to be careful as an investor um, when trying to do due diligence on a startup based on its uh, geographical position. Because we want to find out more and want to try to understand a bit of the behind the scenes of the startups Alexander from Ruvento Ventures gets to talk to, and because we have one of the most insightful early stage deep tech startup founders with us, now we sit down with Amandine to understand more of the other side of the story, of the gap between early stage deep tech startups and investments. What are the provocative details that make or break an early stage deep tech startup? Keep on listening. Um, I was um, I was looking recently at um, at an event and there were lots of talks and one of them was um, about how to build something for investors and for me it was a bit a big red flag because I don't think that anyone should adapt everything to optimize for investment. You need to optimize how you present it, how you make this technology um, easier to understand to VCs, but you can't really change your entire approach just because, or, or even your use case, just because um, it means that you're going to get money. Um, so th the other thing is also, um, it depends who you're talking to. So, it's, it's easier to preach someone who is already convinced about the technology. And so when you're a deep tech startup and you're talking to a deep tech fund, chances are you're already on the same page and you're already talking to people who are convinced about investment in deep tech. But then depending on, on your application, depending on, on, on the use case, you may quite often talk to investors that are not technical, people who don't really see the who are not excited about your your technology. They don't really um, care about that. What really matters is the industry, it's um, the business model, how much you're going to make. And that will evolve a lot of the time. Like we've pivoted and most startups do pivot at some point. So as I said, it's, it's I don't think that there is one way that fits everyone, but uh, if because of your of your industry, because of your application, um, if you can maybe do something, maybe as a first step that is slightly less technical and slightly, well, with no AI, but then that can show that you can bring some users or you can get some initial feedback. Anything that can help to make your case stronger can help. Um, but then, as I said, I don't think that there is really one solution um, apart from trying to convince not just on the technical aspect but on everything else would maybe having a good lineup of 
beta testers be more appealing in such conversation. I do appreciate the fact that we should not build product services for investment. We should be build them to actually solve problems and then figure out uh, the investment aspect. Uh, but say if I am a startup and come with a good lineup of beta testers, my deep tech prototype, which just exited lab, and of course, with a bunch of hypotheses and a bunch of uh, plans to validate and to put these beta testers to you to, to work, would that be a much more fledged plan? I think so, yes. Um, to raise money, it will, it will help a lot, for sure. Um, but once again, it depends who you're talking to. And so when you're looking for funding, personally, I wasn't looking just for money, but I was looking for real partners who could open some doors in my industry, who could make introductions um, in a space that where I didn't necessarily have a large network. And so that was that were my expectations. Um, but then, for sure, um, independently uh, of who you're talking to, um, yes, having anything else that can make your, your case stronger, like some beta testers, would be helpful. But I truly understand that it's it's hard. It's freaking hard. Um, you know, I understand that it, it requires so much resources. So many projects needs to spend maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe two years, just under R&D to go from... Um, an early prototype to something that can actually be tested by by people alive. You know, when we started talking to investors, we had a demonstration of our technology with our bots playing um, Dota 2. So we still have a we're still using Dota 2 for our technical demonstration, but now we have a a new version of that. But when we had this early version, it was a, a very short clip. And questions everyone had was, okay, can I play it right now? How many people are playing against your bots? And we were like, well, we actually need to do more training and to improve our technology to make it ready to play with people. But that means uh, lots of um, lots of time just working on the core technology. And so no one really understood that we couldn't just put it out there and that was it um, and then do more, more work because if we started putting it out there and having some users, we will actually create some hype and then disappoint people because then we will need to get back to the lab and, and just um, you know work on, on the core technology again for another year. Um, and, and you can't do that sometimes depending on your industry. We knew that we couldn't do that and that was uh, the reason why we were very strict um, with investors saying, no, that's not going to, to be what we're going to do. And lots of people gave us a very good insight and tips about how to proceed, but uh, we wanted to stick to our plan because we knew that we knew our industry, we did our research on our end users, and um, that was the best for us. And so I think um, because AI can apply to so many industries, it, it has more effect than what we can think. And so um, you know better than anyone else as a founder um, what you should be doing and what is okay and what is not acceptable. And so if you can find, find some intermediary steps, um, some ways, some baby steps, maybe an additional demo, um, you have to always ask yourself, is it worth doing this? And spending a bit more time on maybe yeah another demo or, or something that is just going to help us for investment or not. 
And then sometimes, and actually most of the time, um, if you if you struggle raising investment, it's not necessarily that your technology is not good enough. It could just be that it's not a good fit for the funds you're talking to, or um, you are not presenting it in a way that it's exciting. And and having worked with so many founders um, in in emerging technologies and in deep tech, um, when when you come from a technical background. If you don't have someone that can balance the skills and, and have a, a different approach, it can be hard sometimes to just detach yourself from the pure technology, um, especially when it's super exciting, to, uh, to the bigger picture and uh, explaining that, selling that this idea. Game-changing indeed. For example, I'm part of, um, of a team that builds an AI pre-accelerator. Just, it's hard, hard to see this, uh, behind the technology itself. And in investment, you, you you usually don't talk to people who understand fully what you're talking about. Um, you know, especially if you're in Europe, um, when you look at, at VC funds, most of the funds have people coming from um, a financial background and uh, very limited people coming from a technical background. So you really have to understand that it's 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 not just you and your technology. That's not why they're going to invest they're actually going to invest in the team they're going to invest in um, the the market your approach the idea many of the things that are independent from the technology um, so it's it's all about de-risking um, what you're doing and that can be very hard when you're just focusing on on the technical on the technical aspects uh, you also mentioned how how time plays with everything uh, especially in the deep tech space, time is a component that uh, could be put at a high risk aspect. I was wondering how long uh, did it take for you to get from idea to, to prototype, for example, because that was the moment you started discussions for, for invest investments and um, comparing that time period with the average uh, we've seen from, from reports, uh, the, the average of time from idea to prototype in, in for example, a report from Boston Consulting and uh, Hello Tomorrow, it uh, states it takes around two years to get from idea to prototype and 1.4 more years to get from prototype to market. Roughly for you, do do you can you remember exactly how long did it take from idea to prototype? Um, yes. So on the purely technical aspect, it took us, I would say, six to nine months to to get a, a, a prototype. I know it's short. It's shorter. It's way shorter than what you said. Um, I think I'm quite lucky. My co-founders knew exactly how to do it, what to do, um, and how he wanted to to build the core technology and our objectives also for it. So as I said initially, we had in mind this B2C platform, and so um, that's that was the focus of of our our core technology, and so we had the different steps, and so after after six nine months when we had this first version, um, that's when we we talked to people and uh, we realized that we understood that there were so much more to be done to uh, to reach the point where we can have the full B two C platform. But then also we realized that we could actually do something with what we already had with um, a bit more 
um, a bit more work, but not as much as with the initial idea. And that also convinced us to convinced us to do pivot. We had feedback from the ecosystem that there were an opportunity we could take, but in the same time, um, that would have mean that that meant um, less need for money. And that I think for for deep tech startup, if you if you spot an opportunity uh, to go faster to market, um, you you need to take it just because um, it's. It's safer, I think, for entrepreneurs not to be dependent for such a long time on on external investors. Um, but I'm, I think I'm going far away from from your initial question. I really think that it depends on what you can do. Um, I've seen lots of startups um, uh, taking years to really reach to a point where they can have a product or, or go to the next step. And I think it depends on what you're building. Um, are, are your investors on board with that um, and with your plan? It's it's all about having a, an open discussion. I don't think that there is a right and wrong approach. It's all about if it makes sense for, for your own company and if everyone involved in it is okay with that plan. Um, it, it can indeed take lo- lots of time, but uh, but then can you do something in, 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 in between? Can you still use it? Can you still offer something? Um, it's, it's, it's all about how you want to build your, your startup. But that, that can be a plan, uh, spending years building a product, for example, especially if in the end you sell the end product directly. That's one of the main concerns, you know, this uh, uncertain outcome that a deep tech startup could spend years of the, on the development and trying to offer arguments to startup uh, founders to find uh, low-hanging fruits in the meantime to still offer something back uh, while they continue developing uh, their core. Um, I think that the big risk, really, for, for any kind of startup is to spend some time and energy and money building something that no one wants. That's a big risk. And that's why everyone within startups is going to say that you need to spend time on your idea and validating your idea and making sure that there is a market and talking to your to your clients. When you're building an AI startup, I understand how uh, frightening it can be because you know that it's not ready yet. You know that it's just an idea, you know how it's going to play, but you don't know how long it will take you to reach to this point. And so talking to potential customers is really terrifying because you don't want to to start talking to someone, get them excited about what you're doing. And then after a few meetings, um, just say, oh, well, actually, we need uh, two years of development before we can take it further. And so potentially you lose those potential leads. Um, so I think it's just important for, for companies in deep tech um, just to, uh, uh, to embrace the uncertainty, but also if they can find any way to be smarter, to talk to people, to make sure, sure that when the product or when the solution, when it's ready, um, you haven't spent uh, millions and years working on something that in the end is not solving a problem. Um, finding your product market fit is um, is something that 
you know, is top of the mind to every founders. Um, and it takes time, it takes iterations, it takes changes. And so when you're building something highly technical and that requires uh, use of R&D, um, you kind of increase the risk of building something that not, is not going to fit someone's needs just because it's not exactly the features they want. They don't really want wanted to look like this or that um they're actually okay on this problem but they need something to fix this other problem um so i think it's it 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 can be okay to have to spend lots of time building the core technology and such a time frame as soon as you are 100 percent sure that what you're doing is really fitting a market um and so that means that no one should be just doing purely technical work without having at least one person who is already underground talking to potential clients, talking to people who are going to be using it, planning ahead some some maybe testing or, or planning the, the relationship. You know, it's not like you have a first phase that is the technical development. And then the second phase that is all about selling, you need to do both at the same time, at least to make sure that you're building something that that really fits a needs um, and finds its market. Such a rich conversation. I made so many mental notes. <laughs> it's I really love this. Um, you know, one of the struggles in deep tech is that we don't have a baseline uh, in most of the things we develop. Um, there are very few AI developments that have a baseline or precedent. Um, while you might be lucky to be in a very, uh, I don't know, fortunate situation to have a precedent, so you can uh, have also baseline to communicate. Most most of the startups uh, run into a no baseline uh, space with unforeseen risks, uh, hence a very high risk for potential investors and also a very long journey, as you already flagged. Um, how is that working out from a cost perspective? You know, we, we, we refer to the cost of training, we refer to the cost of inference um, versus any other regular costs affecting business models or regular startups. Um, how, how is that going out for you? Because you have to train models, it, it's, it goes longer. Um, you're bootstrapping. How 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 do you cope with everything, and um, how is it affecting your business model or your build-up plan? My co-founder and I, we actually spent um, quite some time sitting together, looking at the the, the clouds um, cost and prices, and just comparing everything, trying to find the best solution. Not just for the training, um, the training aspect hasn't really been the, 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 the biggest question for us when we were thinking about doing a B2C platform uh, because what we were actually thinking about was more about the, the cost um, for the production. And so when you do B2C, you need to have lower prices. Um, well, in our situation, we, we, we needed to have quite low prices. And so the, the financial modeling was... I would say relatively easy because it was uh, based on a subscription model. And so when you have revenue that is uh, recurrent like that, well, you can, you can, everything goes together. When we decided to um, switch for a B2C service instead, a B2B service instead, um, then I tried to do a financial model and 
clearly it was it was a mess. Um, I had no idea where to start, um, what to take in consideration. So yeah, you mentioned that the training, depending on your business model, it can be a big question. And I think that the main problem is the uncertainty. So you need money to cover your R&D, but then once it's in production, you can't really tell when you're very early how much is going to cost you because you haven't fully developed the core technology and the model and everything else. So these things are um, have a cost of development, but then the cost of, of running um, is going to change potentially. And so maybe um, instead of this plan on the cloud, you will need to use this plan on the cloud, which is going to double or triple your cost. And so is it still manageable? Um, in terms of business model, is, is it still viable if you have to change your plan, if eventually your model is way much bigger than expected or needs much more uh, memory or training every time or maybe more regular training or whatever? And so that are the things to, to take in consideration. Um, and it's very hard to to do your, your financial model around it. But, you know, I think the financial model is just... A discussion and, and a discussion opener when you when we're talking about looking for investment for sure when you are a founder you need to understand all your costs and how this works but then it's not something that is not going to move so over time your idea changes a bit um, maybe the way you monetize your solution is going to differ slightly from your initial idea uh, maybe it's uh, uh, you know, there are lots of things that are going to change over time. And so I think when you're very early stage, it's important to show that you understand all the potential costs and you can kind of plan ahead and you know that, well, maybe it's going to be more expensive, but the, the, the business model is resilient enough for that. Or you will need to have discussion about your clients to find a better pricing maybe. But I think when you're in early stage, if if you're looking um, from the if you're looking at your financial model from a, a fundraising point of view, it's more important to show that you understand the cost more than to have numbers that um, are extremely accurate. And not coming from a financial background at all, that was something that stressed me out first. I wanted to make sure that my, my numbers are accurate, that I can trust my financial model. But really quickly, you realize playing with the numbers, trying to change things here and there, that it's more about understanding what affect the cost um, and how the different costs work together rather than having extremely precise numbers because they are going definitely to change over time. Of course, I'm talking when you are pre-seed to seed. Then when you start reaching series A, series B, um, the numbers are definitely more important and they need to be more accurate. But you also have more experience under your belt. You have more clients by then. And yeah, it all becomes smoother. You also have more people on board to help you out. Uh, hopefully it gets all, all better. And in the in this pre-seed pre uh, stage to seed um because you've mentioned you you ha talk a lot with other funders as well. Um, on an average, where do you see the role of AI, machine learning, deep learning uh, in the startups uh, you are exposed to? And even in your own startup, is it like a core um, yeah, side of, uh, of, of your business? Is it a feature 
Uh, is it a end-to-end -end AI solution? Is it a black box AI? Uh, what do you see as a pattern uh, in this space? Um, I think it has evolved a lot over the years. Um, two years ago, I've seen so many startups um, doing AI, but not really doing any AI. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, on the deck and on the presentation. And when yeah, they were, absolutely. Yeah, when they were talking, they were saying, yeah, we're an AI startup. And when you actually ask the right questions, they are, they have nothing to do with AI. I think we, we're over with that, which is great. That's a great news. Um, in, our, in our case, AI is is everything we're doing. I mean, it's not just a, a feature. It's actually um, the core of our offer. That's what we offer. That's our services to help video games um, create smarter and more human-like AIs. So it's really about um, building the, the agents and that's what we're offering. So AI is really at the core of, of what we're doing and what we want to offer. But then um, I've seen many startups who are not in this situation at all. And instead, they are using AI as, um, um, I wouldn't say a black box, but more like, okay, you understand what type of AIs they're using. Um, is it on the top of uh, an existing solution? Is it something that they have developed themselves? You don't really know necessarily, but usually what I've seen is lots of application that has a, a very specific use case um, that, or then you talk to some, some companies that have more of um, an agency model where um, they've done different things. Maybe they specialize in, in one area, one, one type of use case, but then it's all about uh, the service and, and a customizable offer. So uh, that's the two models that I've seen mainly. And uh, I was actually reading this morning an article about all the different startups built on the top of GPT-3. Oh, yes, I, I I love that because GPT is uh, becoming a marketplace of apps now. Yeah. It's, it's pretty hyped. I love that. Um, You know, when it started, it was just fun for everyone to play around and, oh, look, I wrote a letter and that just says anything and that's funny. Uh, but now you, you really have third-party companies building on the top of that. And I love it. Then from the technical perspective, yeah, maybe if you're a machine learning scientist, you're going to be less excited about this type of companies um, because they just use something that already exists. But then for the end users, that's super cool. And I think it really opens the door and the discussions for companies that may have AI more at their, at their own core. Um, you know, since uh, if you see lots of people using products that are powered by AI, maybe if you're a slightly larger company, you want to have something um, just for you or that will help you in some way. Like at least you will have a better understanding of what the technology can do. And so it could help companies that offer the product or services that are a bit more hardcore AI um, to get a fit in the door. Great point. Great point. I was also curious part of the of the deep tech uh, startup uh, journey. Uh, how much in your AI startup and from the other founders you are talking to, how much is reusing uh, existing work, ex existing AI work, um, repackaging and so on and so forth um, for for new problems, and how much is uh, proprietary work 
where you actually take the AI progress. Uh, of course, the exact uh, percentages uh, are not needed, but just, you know, top of your head. Well, here, everything we do is uh, is just uh, proprietary. Um, we, we have built um, everything on our own and we haven't really been relying on other solutions. Um, of course, the work of other companies has opened some doors and inspired us. Um, you know, when you look at our, our technical demonstration on Dota 2, people who have been following OpenAI and their own work with Dota 2, well, you can't not see the similarities in terms of, um, well, just the fact that we're using the tattoo to show our work um, and in terms of use case, right? Uh, but uh, everything we have developed has been developed by my co-founder and I'm so lucky to have him by my side, really. Um, but for the other companies, I, I, I can't really tell. I mean, I think it's super important to be close to other startups, but I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't really know these kind of things because you don't really necessarily talk about that um i think especially when you have very technical founders you are you you are going to talk about maybe non-technical things with other founders because that's what you need help with um and so yeah i i i wouldn't really know um apart from from people using um things like gpt and building on the top of of existing uh things i I wouldn't really know what other startups are doing. One for us to, to discover in future podcasts, for sure. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, we, we close uh, our conversation with uh, one last question. Uh, um, what does a VC scout do? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm a, I'm the CEO and co-founder of WellMeter, and that is my main activity. That's what's really takes most of my time these days. I also have side projects and because I have been involved in the startup ecosystem for now 10 years, um, I am super involved in the London scene. And so I've joined back to VC as a VC scout about two years ago. And um, so it's, it's a voluntary community involvement, I would say. But then VC Scout means different things depending on who, who you're talking to and where they're based. So it's it's growing. It's a trend that is growing a lot among um, venture capital funds where you build a community and it really helps you source startups. So uh, part of the backed VC community, I help them um, access some founders. I make introductions to startups I found especially interesting. Sometimes I'm going to take some calls with some founders because I have experience in some domain or because I am in a good position to ask them interesting questions and evaluate if they're a good deal for for the fund. Or sometimes I'm just going to be involved in some discussions around some industries the fund is is looking at at the moment. So at Back to VC, it's very much about being involved in this small community of people who are super active in the startup scene um, and sharing any insight I can share. But then for other funds, um, sometimes it's really about having people part of your team. Um, I've seen some funds, especially in the US, uh, but a few also coming, it's coming in, in, in Europe and in the UK, where some funds are giving money to um, to people to invest themselves in startups and uh, they are working closely with them to make investment together. So it really depends on, on who you're talking to and where you're based, but it's 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 growing um, and it helps, I think, funds um, get access to a wider 
pool of, of, of founders outside of the, the direct networks. So a VC scout, did I get it correctly that it sources startups, it might or not review pitch decks, and depending on the geography, it might be offered the opportunity to co-invest um, or uh, be reimbursed with a potential fixed fee for its effort or something like this? I think everyone manages that as, as they want. Um, it may be some incentive, it may not be. Um, but I think the, the most important is really to be involved in the ecosystem and to be able to do more. So the thing is, right now, because I'm focusing so much on my own startup, I have slightly less time to do networking. And also, well, there's no events happening. But when, you, when you're going to lots of events, when you meet lots of founders, you want to do more. You want to, to be able to have them. And when you're a scout, instead of just saying, oh, you should be talking to this VC or this person, you can actually make an introduction because you have some insights about one fund. You know what they're looking at, you know uh, more about the thesis. And so you can easily make an introduction. And I think that's the best motivation ever, just being able to uh, do a little bit more for funders that you think are doing a great job and uh, could be a good fit. What an episode! Alexander and Amandine have been fabulous in their insights and we are a step closer to understanding early stage deep tech implications and the perspective of VCs towards deep tech. Bonus, I got to learn what a VC scout does. I'm Alex Petrus and this is Applied AI Pod. Subscribe and leave a review if you like what you listen.